Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And if you thought it was going to be a slow Monday, well, we got news for you. It's not. <laughs> Let's start with the good martini. And, of course, uh, one of the many headlines, Jim, that came out of last Thursday's marathon Democratic debate in Houston was... Beto O'Rourke saying, yes, absolutely, we're coming after your AR-15s, we're coming after your AK-47s. These weapons of war cannot be used against our children. And that made a lot of people happy in the hall, maybe in the Democratic liberal Twitter sphere, but it's making some actual Democrats who are in office a little bit nervous here, one of whom is Chris Coons, the Democratic senator from Delaware, who you might remember from the Kavanaugh process, foreshadowing, uh, when he and uh, Jeff Flake... uh, teamed up to create an extra week of drama last year. Uh, Here's what he had to say on uh, CNN following Beta O'Rourke's comments. Are you supportive of a mandatory buyback program for all of those weapons, all of those assault rifles on America's streets right now? I am not. Uh, And I frankly think that that clip will be played for years uh, at uh, Second Amendment uh, rallies uh, with organizations that uh, try to scare people by saying Democrats are coming for your guns. He says it's too soon to know if it'll damage the party, and he says he knows where Beto's coming from. It's very emotional since his community of El Paso was hit recently with a mass shooting. But, uh, Jim, to what extent do you think he's right? Uh, to what extent do you think that uh, Beto pretty much imploded the Democratic narrative built up over the past generation or more that the party's not out to get your guns? Yeah, I mean, the one quibble I would have with Coons is if you've said that's what you want to do, well, then it's certainly nothing dishonest about it. You're not misleading people about it. There have always been Democrats who have effectively, you know, you you put a drink or two in them and they say, we should go around and take out all the guns. But what really matters isn't just that Beto said it. It was the reaction both from that crowd. Like there was no booze. If, If there had been an awkward silence or only a smattering of applause, well, then maybe that would be, okay, you know, Democrats are, look, there was roaring applause and almost instantaneously the Beto O'Rourke campaign had a a T-shirt made up of it and they're marketing and all that kind of stuff. There are a whole bunch of Democrats who absolutely, totally believe in trying to confiscate weapons that have been legally sold, legally purchased, and that have not been used in any crimes. And, you know, that's going to not sit well with a whole bunch of people for a really good reason. No one's trying to take your guns, you paranoid loons. It doesn't fly anymore. We know this is what a whole bunch of Democrats would like to do. We know this is certainly what the most vocal, active, progressive base of the party wants. Are there some Democrats who aren't so comfortable with this? Sure, Coons would appear to be one of them. But he is a party that is, at the very least, comfortable with uh, that. By the way, there's recent polling numbers that said a significant number of Democrats agree with the San Francisco City Council declaring the NRA a domestic terrorist organization. So, heck yeah, this is going to be played at the next NRA convention. Heck yeah, this is going to be, you know, Republicans are going to seize on this. They ought to, because it's true. And, well, by the way, this means that for the past, you know, minimum 15 years, probably 20 to 30 years, there's been this argument where Republicans or people who support the Second Amendment would say, you want a database of who owns what gun? No, I don't trust you with that. You're going to, you know, I, I think someday the government could try to use that to try to collect everybody's guns. You want to keep permanent records of, of all kinds of No, no, I'm not going to do any of that kind of stuff. Now you know why. And the whole argument, there were two sides. But the Democrats said, oh, no one wants to confiscate your guns. 
And Republicans said, yes, there is. Well, Beto O'Rourke and the reaction of that crowd in that hall proved it. There's a certain school of thought that would say the Democrats might as well just go ahead and embrace gun confiscation. And they'll lose a lot, but they may actually move the ball a little bit further in their direction by being honest about it instead of this really implausible two-step that they've been trying to do for, you know, 15, 20 years. Jim, let's move on to our bad martini now. And uh, this definitely qualifies as bad, since we could be potentially closer to the brink of significant war in the Middle East. That's because drones attacked major Saudi oil facilities, uh, and according to most reports, having their uh, production, uh, cutting it in half. And so the Houthi rebels are taking responsibility for this. Here's Elaine Quijano of CBS News uh, with the summary here. Elaine Quijano, you might remember, she was the uh, moderator for the vice presidential debate. You might forget because Tim Kaine kept interrupting everyone. I like to think of her as the counterbalance to Wolf Blitzer because he gets excited about everything. And Elaine Quijano is just very calm about everything. Here's her summary of what happened. Iran is denying involvement in attacks on Saudi oil plants hours after the U.S. placed the blame on Tehran. Drone strikes hit two major oil facilities in Saudi Arabia Saturday. The attacks could have an impact on energy prices, as the plants are some of the world's largest producers of crude oil. Houthi rebels in Yemen claimed responsibility for the strikes. But Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says Iran was behind them. A commander from the Iranian Revolutionary Guard responded to the accusation Sunday. He said U.S. bases and aircraft carriers in the region are within striking distance of Iranian missiles. Well, the Houthi rebels are sponsored by Iran. They're the Iran proxy in Yemen. So there's Iranian fingerprints here, regardless of how you want to define it, Jim. So where do we stand after all this? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I just put up a corner post on this uh, with some useful links. When they say like the Iranians back the Houthi rebels, occasionally, oh, you know, they're they're just proxies or something. Look, Iran has sent them pretty much every weapon they could possibly launch: rockets, landmines anti-aircraft weapons, you name it, the Iranian arsenal, they've sent it along to the Houthis. Uh, also training to, to, to you know, these guys how to use all these weapons. Intelligence about where their targets are and stuff like that. So it's really hard to say where the Houthis stop and where the Iranians begin. If you see anybody floating the, ah, oh, it wasn't the Iranians, it was the Houthis. You know, it's a little bit like the um, Russian-backed, totally not the Russian army militia that was in eastern Ukraine that shot down the uh, Malaysian airliner. Um, At some point, like when you're starting to do everything to train and to organize a fighting group and they do something terrible, you can't just say, oh, look, it's those guys. I barely know those guys, you know, as the excuse anymore. This is bad. Uh, We've kind of had this attitude of, well, you know, since Trump's been president, really haven't had any serious foreign policy crisis. I mean, you know, there's Hong Kong, (laughs) Venezuela, there's, uh, you know, Eastern Ukraine. Stuff has happened. We really haven't had the, oh, my God, turn on CNN. Something's blowing up wait for Wolf Blitzer to tell us to stand by uh, the situation room reporting on what's going on in the situation room type foreign policy crisis. We might be getting there. This is, you know, yellow alert, as they would say on the Starship Enterprise. This is uh, this is a deeply concerning because one, oil prices are going to go up high. We're not as dependent on, in fact, we're really not dependent on Saudi Arabian oil anymore, but the rest of the world sort of is. And, you know, when global demand or global supply gets disrupted, Demand stays the same. Prices go up. Eventually, it's going to start affecting U.S. consumers. I'm glad Trump decided to open up the uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve. This seems like exactly the sort of situation that we, that we have it for. By the way, for everybody who thinks I don't want to say nice things about Trump, hey, good job, Mr. President. Uh, now, on this, as I you know, lay out in a corner post today, 
we got four options and all of them are bad or at minimum risky, maybe a fifth one. First option is do nothing and hope that the problem goes away. It's probably not going to happen. Option two is pay the Danegeld. The French want to give the Iranians a $15 billion loan. Uh, maybe if we sign on to that, Bill, we can bribe them into better behavior, Greg. Now, the problem is if that doesn't work, you've just given somebody who hates you an extra $15 billion to use to hurt you. Um, option three is trust the Saudis to respond to this. And there are some very bright foreign policy experts who say, look, you know what? This is Saudi Arabia's fight. We've sold them every weapon they could ever possibly want. Let them go for, you know, it's their fight. Go for it, guys. I don't know about you, Greg. These are the guys who keep blowing up school buses in Yemen uh, and prisons and, you know, water desalinization plants and, and, you know, all kinds of, they've got a really lousy record of hitting civilians when they're aiming for military guys. I could very easily see the Saudi counterstrike against this escalating things. Um, option four is the U.S. Pentagon, you know, that we, we decide to handle the response, that we start to do something. And we could hit, you know, oil rigs off the shore of uh, Iran. We could hit the Iranian Navy. Apparently, uh, according to Eli Lake, we know where there are a whole bunch of Iranian assets outside of the Iranian territory. That would seem to be the one that would be our best way of controlling a proportional response. Um, of course, if you do that, there's always a chance that Iran strikes, you know, Iran reacts like this is a declaration of war and starts trying to strike Americans directly back there. And then the fifth one, maybe the best option, but it all kind of depends on circumstances, is we all remember when Trump tweeted out that, hey, remember this thing that blew up in Iran, that launch site? We had nothing to do with it. We have no idea how it happened. You know, by the way, here's our high-resolution satellite photo that's classified that I probably should share. <laughs> um, that would be most convenient, but it always depends on what can you do, what kind of covert assets do you have in the region, what kind of intelligence, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, again, my sense is when Iran does something this big, you've got to respond in some way. You kind of wonder if the decision to call off the counter-strike on Iran early, a couple months ago, this is the consequence of that, that Iran isn't really afraid of us anymore. Maybe things will calm down a bit, Greg, but uh, look, it's Iran. Things are never going to calm down for that, for that long. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And it is September, which is now better known as Brett Kavanaugh Defamation Month for the second consecutive year. <laughs> uh, anniversary. Happy anniversary. Hey, happy Bash Kavanaugh Day. Yeah, so over the weekend, we've got uh, the New York Times publishing uh, a story related to a book that two of its reporters are doing, uh, basically following up on the whole Kavanaugh saga from a year ago. And uh, this got a lot of attention. So if you have little ears in the car or with you, hit pause, please. We also uncovered a previously unreported story about Mr. Kavanaugh in his freshman year that echoes Ms. Ramirez's allegation. That goes back to Deborah Ramirez. She was the second accuser that the New York Times wouldn't even touch that story. Uh, Ronan Farrow and uh, his colleague had eventually had to publish that because she didn't actually remember it, and then she thinks it might have been Kavanaugh, and so uh, there was a lot of uh, questions related to that. So anyway, this uh, story allegedly echoes Ms. Ramirez's allegation. A classmate, Max Steyer, saw Mr. Kavanaugh with his pants down at a different drunken dorm party where friends pushed Mr. Kavanaugh's male anatomy into the hand of a female student. And so that, of course, got a lot of people very interested in what the political and legal ramifications of this are without waiting for any context or uh, further details. He had four different Democratic presidential candidates insisting that Kavanaugh resign or be impeached, including Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Beto O'Rourke, of course, and Julian Castro. But there's a little bit more to the story, in addition to the fact that Mr. Steyer wouldn't actually go on the record with the New York Times or the book. So people who are 
actually getting the story secondhand at best, were the source for this. Meanwhile, this got added later as an editor's note. An earlier version of this article, which was adapted from a forthcoming book, did not include one element of the book's account regarding an assertion by a Yale classmate that friends of Brett Kavanaugh pushed his anatomy into the hand of a female student at a drunken dorm party. The book reports that the female student declined to be interviewed, and friends say she does not recall the incident. That information has been added to the article. Jim... What do you make of the New York Times and their um, ethics here? Not much, Greg. <laughs> not much. Um, first of all, again, I'm curious. I, I really do want to learn learn if there's been a change in what students in journalism are taught. Because if I came to an editor with this at any point earlier in my career, they would not run it. They would say, look, you, you don't have a story here. You have somebody saying through the telephone game that they heard from somebody who heard from somebody if the original witness has told others she does not recall it happening, then you don't have a story, right? You, you need to have that firsthand witness there. So the other thing that was noting is this is not in a news article by the New York Times. should have been a glaring uh, red flag, number one. This allegation was not in the headline, glaring red flag, number two. This is part of a book excerpt. Well, you know, this is a kind of neither fish nor fowl sort of situation for a newspaper when one of their correspondents has been writing a book on the side. They have information in the book. They put it out there. They're running an excerpt. Keith Urban, who's a really good book agent, uh, was saying today, look, it's always tough to take a long book and take, you know, maybe 2% of it and turn it into an excerpt and give people an accurate sense of what's in the book. Having said that, it's really hard to say, oh, by the way, you know, to leave out, oh, by the way, later in the chapter, it turns out she uh, declined to be interviewed and friends say she doesn't recall the answer. That that's got to be in there. That's got to be right up there. And again, if people will say, you know, there, there's uh, who's Ron Fournier, who's otherwise a nice guy, but who keeps saying, "Oh, look, you know, the media makes mistakes, but the important thing is they admit it and they learn from it and they move on." No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> they may admit it when somebody like Molly Hemingway calls them out and says, "Hey, I got a copy of your book. I've read ahead." Spoiler alert: she doesn't remember it. This stuff kind of matters, you know. The attitude of you. Know, Greg, I'll, again, I'm, and I was racking my brain today, and I was debated tweeting this out. I don't know. Can you remember any case in which the media ran with a false accusation against a lefty and, and you know, shoddy journalism, didn't check with the sources, you know, really destroyed somebody's reputation? It was somebody on the left, and then they came back and said, oops, never mind. Hard to think. I don't know anybody on the left that did the uh, Menendez story. That's the only one on the left that even comes close to coming to mind. But I don't think yeah, the left even was... Yeah, then it was a hung jury. <laughs> there was no evidence. Yeah. Clearly, prosecutors thought there was enough there to go to... You know, a grand jury was convinced that there was enough to go. I mean, I suppose some folks might say Franken, but it's not like any of his accusers retracted it. The defense, you know, particularly from the Jane Myers of the world, is like, ah, who hasn't cupped a butt every now and then while posing for a picture? You know, he's clumsy. He just accidentally gropes women. And I just don't think that. But oh, by the way, sorry, listeners, if you had your kids in the car. Kids, don't do that stuff. It's deeply frustrating. You have this feeling that the New York Times would never do this. It, it's been really wild to watch this bonfire of journalistic reputations uh, since the Kavanaugh thing started. And there's just so much intensity. Um, the only other thing I would note here is if you're wondering, like, you know, why there's this. I mean, some people say, first of all, this is not actually about Kavanaugh. This is about the inevitable departure of Ruth Bader Ginsburg from the court and or this, this plane of existence and, uh, you know, the fight to replace her and the idea of trying to delegitimize the right of center majority on the court uh, for years to come. 
I, that's probably a factor. That's probably something that's lurking in somebody's in the background of somebody's mind. So let's also note, like again, this is at Yale, right? This is in uh, Georgetown Prep, right? These are uh, elite institutions. People who are, you know, born at the top, stayed near the top, accomplished, bright kids, went on to, you know, do great things in life. And let's face it, probably left of center in most cases. I'm, obviously, Kavanaugh demonstrates there were some conservatives in, in institutions like that. But by and large, if you're Brett Kavanaugh's age and you went to Georgetown Prep and you went to uh, Yale at that time period, you probably were, uh, uh, you're probably left of center. It probably irks you that one of your classmates is now on the Supreme Court. It probably irked you not just for his, you know, resentment of his professional accomplishments and all that, but like out of all the people you knew, that guy ends up on the Supreme Court. So there was this anecdote that stuck with me. It was a guy who wrote a book about the 9-11 hijackers. He wrote in a column in 2006 all the people he'd spoken to who were absolutely convinced they had run across the hijacker Muhammad Atta sometime in the months or years before the hijackings. And, you know, the 9-11 Commission had tried to review all this stuff to work through the timeline, figure out from things like ATM receipts and security footage and passport information and car rental stuff, you know, trying to piece about where they could be certain that Muhammad Atta was and was not. And the end result was that there were dozens of people who were totally convinced that they had uh, interacted with Muhammad Atta, including according to this guy, like two women who were convinced they'd married him, even though it was pretty obvious it was impossible that he could not have been when and where they described it. And he's talking about how the mind works. And he says that some people, you know, one, obviously they remember they saw the, 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 the passport photo, they see the face and your mind kind of puts the face onto this memory of this, you know, 30 something Arab guy you encountered with years ago who had acted kind of weird or something like that. And your mind actually edits your memories to what you want to believe. Uh, we've all talked about motivated reasoning. This is sort of motivated remembering. And my suspicion is, is that, you know, at Yale and at uh, Georgetown Prep, they're probably, you know, look, first of all, Kavanaugh has been straightforward about this. Sure, he was a drinker and sure, he was a party guy. And he liked beer and all that kind of stuff. You know, now, did he do the horrible things he's accused of? No, but, you know, chances are if there was a raging kegger, you might have had, you know, might have seen old Brett Kavanaugh there. There probably were some guys in those circles who might have been jerks. There might have been some other people who may have done some of these things that Kavanaugh is being accused of. If you hate Brett Kavanaugh and you remember some jerk from Yale, at some point, your mind is going to try to connect those two and say, hey, that jerk who I vaguely remember from 30, 40 years ago, that was Brett Kavanaugh. And that happens to the very best of people uh, can end up having, you know, their, they edit their own memories this way. This is one of the reasons cops get very nervous about uh, eyewitness testimony, particularly the more time that goes by. Anyway, that's where we are uh, with this. I think it's very depressing. I think it's going to, you know, blow up in their faces because um, there were a whole bunch of people who were not big Trump fans who ended up being, you know, going to the mattresses during the Kavanaugh fight last year. If the Dem you know, now of course now have the Democratic field has called for impeaching Kavanaugh. Hey, you know what? You want to make the 2020 election and a referendum on impeaching Kavanaugh? Go right ahead. I'm sure the Trump campaign would love to have that every day of the week and twice on Sundays. I would say twice on Sundays, but we vote on Tuesdays. So maybe they prefer that twice on Tuesdays. <laughs> so, Jim... We got a problem here, but of course it's the Republicans' fault. E.J. Dion, liberal columnist over at the uh, Washington Post, quoting Brett Kavanaugh, says the Supreme Court must never, never be viewed as a partisan institution, unquote. But Dion says that's exactly what it is, thanks to a GOP determined to control it by any means available. It's why questions about Kavanaugh and the court haunt us. Jim, that is some amazing revisionism there. And it just makes me wonder, 
that if the Democrats are already setting the stage for if they do actually win in 2020, trying to delegitimize a Supreme Court that might stand in the way of what a Democratic administration might want to do? Oh, that's extremely likely. I, you know, look, E.J. Dion does make a really good point, though, Greg, in that, you know, Democrats are just so nice. <laughs> They, they never make negative attacks. They never get personal. Um, there, there's no one in the media who's willing to amplify their arguments and messages. Nobody's ever really willing to criticize. Repu- I mean, here's a, I mean, just look at how the coverage of Brett Kavanaugh, how kind everybody was to him throughout the entire process. <laughs> we lose because we're so nice. You know who believes that, Greg? Losers. That's <laughs> Right. I mean, it is the most self-flattering explanation you could ever possibly come up with. Ah, you know, we're just so virtuous. We're just so good that we we just if we just got as nasty as the other side, you know, and complete obliviousness to the nastiness of the, I think is uh, pervasive on both sides of politics. So, yeah, it's it's a you know happy fairy tale that liberals tell themselves so they can go to sleep at night. I think Kavanaugh just needs to make September Beach Month instead of ah. Beach Week. But uh, new term starts in a couple of weeks. Jim, see you tomorrow. Oye, oye, oye. <laughs> see you tomorrow. Happy Monday. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.